Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Empire Strikes First podcast. This is Anders and Andre, and this week we're joined by Professor John Shelton from University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. John, thanks for thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, it's great to be here at the end of a pretty uh, pretty long week, actually. Um, so uh, yeah, just just so y'all know who I am, uh, I am a, uh, a professor at UW Green Bay in a program called Democracy and Justice Studies, which uh, I think is is one of the maybe only program. I mean, I think it's the only program called that in the country, but one of the only sort of programs like ours. Uh, where we take, you know, kind of um, historical and contemporary perspectives on uh, questions of democracy and social justice, past and present. I study uh, the labor movement uh, historically, as well as uh, U.S. public education, um, and I also serve as uh, an executive council member of, of our faculty and staff union, UWGB United. And um, as part of that, I also have been elected uh, to represent all of the higher education faculty and staff uh, through the American Federation of Teachers, Wisconsin. So my day job is a professor, uh, but, I, but I also do a lot of advocacy work for faculty, staff, and, and of course, students, because student uh, learning conditions are faculty and staff working conditions. Um, so I do a lot of that, that advocacy, too. Yeah, so I, I have um, a question that goes a little bit into something you already touched on, that you're a professor of democracy and justice studies, which is something that is really interesting to me, being that I'm in college right now. My school has nothing that cool. Um, <laughs> but like, what does like being a student in that program, like what does that entail? What what kind of what makes it different than like a typical, like a public policy major or a government major, um, political science major? Yeah, that's that, that's really a terrific question. Um, so obviously, you know, a lot of the work that we do connects to public policy and connects to government. Um, but, you know, th those sorts of programs tend to take, you know, sort of a, a morally neutral approach, uh, you know, toward studying issues of power in society, right? Um, you know, you're you're going to get uh, into you know into the analysis of how systems work, um, how policies get passed, you know that kind of stuff, and and it's really going to be from you know kind of a value neutral kind of standpoint. You're going to learn how things work, right? Um, our university, and I apologize for the tangent, but it's it's kind of necessary to understand how we got to where we are. Um, so when our university was formed in the 1960s. Um, the idea was to break down uh, disciplinary silos and to allow students, young people, right? I mean, this is the 60s, right? When you've got all this campus ferment and people protesting the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement, you know, but the idea is to, is to help young people connect to the world in a, in a very meaningful way. So that, that was the sort of um, founding vision that our university was, was founded on. And so back in those days, um, you actually couldn't major in a discipline. Right. So like you couldn't major in something like political science. All of our majors were, um, you know, sort of oriented around what we would call a problem focus. Right. Something that students could think about in a very engaging way and, and think about how to make an impact on the world. So, um, in fact, a lot of our programs were based around ecology back in those days. Um, now, for a whole host of reasons that we don't have time to get into in this podcast, uh, our university has, you know, many of the programs have moved away from that and, and ended up being more like traditional disciplinary programs. 
but, but our program hasn't. So we used to be a program called Social Change and Development. About 10 years ago, this was before, right before I got here, uh, we changed our focus to democracy and justice studies. And the, what makes our program unique is that we believe that democracy is a good thing. We believe that uh, society should be organized democratically. Uh, we believe that um, justice is a very important thing. And, you know, beyond just, you know, kind of legal ideas about justice, social justice, right, equality, right? We believe that to have a democracy, you have to have equality in a society, right? So um, our program is oriented around really that question. And so um, every part of our major is about training students to think about that question. Now, there's different perspectives. We have different like emphases within our major. So, um, you know, you can you can have an emphasis in criminal justice and you can learn about these issues as it relates to the criminal justice system. Or you can uh, take the uh, U.S. and the world emphasis and you kind of learn, uh, make these connections like, um, you know, in the historical and contemporary world um, from an international perspective. Um, so there's lots of different ways to approach this. Obviously, you know, what I do is, is I study labor and public education and think about how these issues, uh, past and present, connect there. Uh, but, but again, what we're trying to do is connect students to take knowledge, uh, to take a critical perspective and bring that into the community, whether that's being an engaged citizen or whether that's in the job that they do. And, and quite honestly, you know, it's, it's been tough the past decade being a, a, a faculty member in a, in a, in a public uh, system of higher ed in a state like Wisconsin, where we've had the legislature essentially attempting to, to and mostly successfully defunding us. Um, but the one thing that, I, that, that really keeps me going above everything else are my students because our students come out of our program ready to go, you know, and they do great things. Some of them become police officers and, you know, they're, they're, you know, good police officers because they understand the systems of inequality that they're, that they're walking into. Um, some of our students become labor organizers. I have a, a student who graduated about five years ago. She's, you know, one of the best organizers for the National Nurses Union, which is like the most progressive in my in my view one of the most progressive unions in the country um and you know so those are the so the so the students that that come out of our program they run the whole gamut of those things but um they do really cool stuff because you know from from a very early stage uh in college they're thinking about how to take what they're doing and taking it out into the world so sorry that's a that's a long-winded version of it but you can tell i'm, I'm really enthusiastic about what we do and so I, I could probably fill up your whole hour just by talking about that yeah, yeah, I, I definitely get that. That's like me with healthcare or money and politics. I can talk about it for hours. It's kind of ridiculous. But yeah, we did want to talk uh, about like labor organizing and, and the history of unions a little bit. Um, I, I guess my question is kind of starting on two prongs. Um, so in, in from my small knowledge of unions, I believe that traditionally unions had an adversarial uh relationship with political parties or, or politics in general, uh, mainly because they were uh, fighting to hold their politicians accountable, such as, you know, the socialist movement, Eugene Debs, and et cetera. Uh, but now, if we move forward to today, one of my criticisms of unions is that there's a little bit too much buddy-buddy uh, relationship with the, the Democratic Party or, or parties in general or politics in general. And I think that... Um, that kind of partnership has led to honestly the destruction of unions. I mean, if we look at 
the the percentage of of um, uh, employed workers that are unionized it has been destroyed since the 1930s. Um, I guess my my question is for from your perspective, what what happened to unions um, from them going to having an adversarial relationship with political parties to having a partnership with political parties uh, to what we have today? Yeah, boy, uh, Andre, that is a that is a huge question and and a great question and really central to thinking about uh, class inequality in the United States today. Um, I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying at any point, just interrupt me if I'm if I'm you know going too too far because this is a big question. Um, yeah, it's it's funny, um, you know this uh, this academic named Mike Davis. Uh, I don't know if you all are familiar with him at all. He wrote this great book about Los Angeles called City of Quartz that he's sort of most known for. It's well worth checking out. But he he talks about the, um, he calls the relationship between unions and the Democratic Party a, a barren marriage. <laughs> um, so to your point, I mean, this is, to me, that's, that's, that's always been a, um, you know, compelling way to think about that, you know, connection, you know, since about, I don't know, the, the 1950s or 60s, maybe. Um, but yeah, to answer the question, so in class yesterday, you brought up Debs. I was I was actually just using a quote from Debs uh, where he sort of talks about both Republicans and Democrats, you know, being the party of capitalists and and not really, you know, either worth um, the time of of workers. Um, now, you know, one of the things to remember is that is sort of at the outset is the labor movement is not monolithic, right? So there's different. Uh, unions that have different views on really different theories of power. Um, and so, you know, you have very radical unions like um, the American Railway Union, which was Deb's union before he became a socialist, you know, uh, who, you know, really weren't trying to work with through political parties. But you do have more conservative unions like the AFL unions, even, you know, back in the early 1900s that actually were looking to push politicians. And, and even back then, it was mostly Democrats. So, you know, labor actually was a pretty strong supporter of Woodrow Wilson, um, you know, with all of the problematic things that, you know, Woodrow Wilson st stood for, particularly in race. I mean, it's, you know, we'll, we'll kind of leave that at that. But, um, you know, and, and they did push Wilson uh, productively to, to pass some laws that protected workers. The first um, uh, child labor law actually is passed during the Wilson administration. And that's, you know, because of the support of labor. Uh, but but the big moment comes, of course, in the 1930s when labor kind of forges this alliance with the Democratic Party. And the thing to remember there is that, you know, the, the Democratic Party was a vastly different institution than it is now. You know, um, FDR was at the head of it. And, but he also had, you know, these other Democrats, people like Frances Perkins, who was the first female cabinet member, secretary of labor, who worked to author the Social Security Act. Um, and Robert Wagner, the senator from New York who um, you know, really pushed for legislation to give workers meaningful collective bargaining rights for quite some time. It was in the 30s where all that kind of came together. And so you've got this new militant industrial you know, labor movement really led by the CIO, which comes out of the 1930s. You know, these new very militant unions like the United Auto Workers that, that stage these you know, things like sit down strikes. And, and you know, you've got this, this really intense organizing and intense conflict. And they're being pushed by the Democrats. They're being pushed by the Democratic Party to, to do this because um, this was seen as being central to solving the Great Depression was to give workers power. So very different, you know, in spite of whatever the Biden administration says about unions, this, this was a Democratic Party that wanted workers to be powerful. 
that saw that as in the economic interest of the United States getting out of the depression. So what changes is, you know, sort of, I'm, I'm going to skip over a lot of stuff, but basically after World War II, um, unions become very powerful because of the New Deal reforms and because of things that happened during World War II. And so you have millions of workers in unions. It, it really, um, you've, I'm sure you, you both have heard the expression, a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, th this really was the case that even, you know, the, the high water mark of the percentage of workers in unions is about uh, 30 uh, uh, is about um, you know 35% of the non-agricultural workforce in the early 1950s. But the other 65% of the working population, um, they, they end up getting better wages and better working conditions because their employers don't want to be unionized, right? Um, so you know what it, it's disproportionate, right? I mean, um, African American workers, for example, don't do as well as white workers. And there's other reasons for that too, related to things like housing policy. Um, but most, pretty much all work, working people in the United States, and that goes for black workers and Latino workers, end up seeing their uh, standard of living increase in the 1950s and 60s. So that's when you see inequality. Uh, some economists call this the great compression because inequality becomes smaller during this period. Um, now, what happens by the 1960s and 70s is that the Democratic Party, to the, the original premise of your question, starts to take unions for granted starts to take uh, working people and their, their votes for granted. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, for a long time, people talked about, and by people, I mean like political pundits, talked about the 1970s and said, well, the problem was that you had these, these excessive demands of like civil rights activists and feminists and the gay rights movement and all these things. And, and for that reason, Democrats stopped thinking about economic needs of workers. Um, but, but I actually think um, there's a few other things going on, and it's and and you know that's not the case actually. Civil rights activists become less powerful in the in the 1970s, not more so. It's more that um, you know that Democrats started listening more to professional class constituencies, right? You've got more and more workers who have college degrees who are working in places like um, uh, you know the Route 128 corridor in Massachusetts. Lily Geismer has a great book about this if you're if folks are interested. Um, but, you know, that kind of becomes the center of the party. And so you start to have this new generation of Democrats. And by the way, Joe Biden, you can call him Scranton Joe or whatever it is that people call him. But Joe Biden was part of this new cohort of uh, people elected in the 70s, especially after Watergate in 74, who really see themselves as supporting professional class constituencies and not being really that responsive to the needs of, you know, say, blue collar workers. So the, the reforms that are needed to ensure that the labor movement remains strong, they kind of wither in the 1970s, right? Um, somebody texted me today that it, it's uh, Jimmy Carter's 97th birthday or something. Jimmy Carter is maybe more responsible than any other single Democrat for the demise of the labor movement in this country. Because there was a moment in the late 1970s where labor was working really hard to um, uh, to pass labor reform that would have made it easier for workers to win union elections. And this was the moment, by the way, when, you know, the, the working class was becoming, especially in these heavy blue collar industries, was becoming much more diverse and finally getting access to these good jobs because of you know, it's 10 years after the Civil Rights Act and Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And, you know, so you've got black workers and women workers breaking into these, these you know, blue collar gigs. 
And this is the moment when, you know, corporate America goes to war on workers and the Democrats don't do very much to reform things. And, it, and it's largely because Carter kind of held it up, actually. He wasn't interested in doing it. He never supported unions, really. And so long story short, that then kind of leads to a trajectory of, you know, what being sort of at the center of the Democratic Party, like not a very strong commitment to labor. I mean, Clinton doesn't support labor, you know, very much. He, he negotiates NAFTA and does very little to support labor's priorities, one of which was a striker replacement, uh, an anti-striker replacement law in the 90s. Um, you know, even through Obama, frankly, I mean, Obama gave, um, you know, uh, very little attention to trying to make it easier for workers to organize. And so, you know, the, the, to back to the original premise of your question, you know, you're right. I mean, the, the Democrat or um, workers keep, or unions keep supporting these democratic candidates who don't always have their needs, you know, at the forefront of um, uh, at the forefront of the policies that they're thinking about. Um, but why do they do it? Well, because Republicans are continuing to be more and more regressive. I mean, Reagan's way worse than Carter, for example. Carter's not going to help workers, but but Reagan was doing things to like actively break unions, like when he fired the Patco workers. So, you know, what you've seen, I think that that I think. Is, is leading things to change is you are seeing at least a few unions now who are saying like, well, we're not gonna just rubber stamp any Democrat. We're only gonna support Democrats. You know, I talked about the National Nurses Union. We're only gonna support Democrats that believe in single payer healthcare, right? And, you know, I think you're seeing that from more and more unions and there's there's more kind of um, divergence there, but but yeah, to, I mean, to your point, you, you still see that kind of that kind of rote support for Democrats. And and I, I'm a Democrat, by the way, right? So just to make that clear, um, but I can be critical of my own party. Um, right. hey. Awesome answer. Uh, where do I sign up for your class? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Anders. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Yeah, I think I think that was that was number one. Really interesting to me because just to hear kind of the progression throughout history and kind of it makes me want to take a class uh, from you. But um, you talked a lot about um, you focused on kind of the role uh, that unions had in like the New Deal era in the 1930s um just now and i'm kind of wondering like one you know would a lot of those new deal reforms have been possible without organized labor like that that we kind of take for granted now like social security um and two like what based on what happened then if we're going to fight for a green new deal or kind of a new era of you know similar uh growth of the social safety net what role do unions have to play in that now? Yeah, that's that's a terrific question. Um, you know, to, to the to the first part of your question, um, the answer is none of those reforms happen without workers organizing, right? Um, 1935, you've got this this sort of uh, triumvirate of really important legislation that happens that year. One is the Social Security Act, which I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this know what that is. The second is the National Labor Relations Act, which for the really institutionalized long term, the right of workers to organize and the right to go on strike. They don't we don't often think about that as being part of workers rights, but that was really integral because the idea was that that's the primary leverage that workers have. And the third of these is a little more esoteric, but it's the Revenue Act of 1935, which really set into place our modern progressive 
tax structure, right? So the, the idea that you tax people not to produce revenue, but to but effectively to reduce the power of the wealthy, right? Um, those things don't happen without workers because let me tell you what's happening in 1934. In 1934, there was a massive strike wave. Um, you had a general strike in San Francisco. You had a massive Teamster strike in Minneapolis. You had a textile strike that went all the way up the Eastern seaboard. Um, in Wisconsin, I'm giving a talk on this on Monday, actually, in, in, in Sheboygan, where Kohler is, you had this really um, uh, violent strike in, in, in the Kohler company right outside of Sheboygan, where the, the company had effectively, it was a company town, they had basically um, hired local, um, local folks to serve as, uh, uh, what did they call them, deputies, who then fired in, on, on striking workers and, and killed two of them. Um, but the difference between that and, and previous kinds of legislation or previous uh, labor um, efforts is that the, the state government and the federal government supported those strikers. They didn't support the company or, or, or send in the troops to break the strike. So in fact, actually, while the state militia was, was there, um, you know, sort of keeping order and preventing the deputies from killing more workers, um, FDR comes to Green Bay in 19... Like in August of 1934, and he doesn't mention Kohler by name, but he 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 talks about the fact that you know these forces that only care about their own private profits are going to stop uh, people from uh, having the things that they need, right? And talks about the importance of collective responses. So um, you know, I'll use a fancy term here, but what happens in the 1930s truly is a dialectic between worker militants and uh, uh, democratic leadership that um you know really sees the need for this kind of um this kind of uh, uh organizing so uh, one other anecdote there uh francis perkins who i mentioned was the first female cabinet um, secretary uh folks listening to this might know something about the triangle shirtwaist fire which was uh, that fire in 1911 where over a hundred workers most of them women either burned to death in a factory or or jumped out the windows because the because the owners were worried about theft and so they locked the doors right and so you had this just horrific scene in downtown new york with bodies on the sidewalk perkins uh basically said that was the moment that the new deal was born because that's when she was and others were galvanized to, to say we got to do something about this problem so you you did have this this generation of democratic politicians who come to power who who see what's happening and want to do something about it and that actually really matters right because it's because if if john nance garner who was like fdr's first vice president had come to power um, you know, like as president, like things would have been a lot different. He was a Democrat who didn't believe those things. So um, I, I think the answer is, is both, but you need both of those things. And if we're going to have something like a Green New Deal, which I, by the way, I, I support 100%, um, you're going to need workers to, to organize, but you're, you're also going to, we, we also need, um, you know, politicians to come up through the ranks and, you know, notwithstanding the idea, and this is my view, right? Folks may disagree with me and I'm happy to have that conversation, you know, notwithstanding the idea that um, the Democratic Party hasn't always been uh, the best uh, representative of workers' rights. Um, you know, it's so hard to win a, a, an election as a third party, you know, that I, I think we've got to bring people up through the Democratic Party who can 
um, you know, who, who are committed to these ideas too. They, they're still going to need to be pushed by workers, right? And I think uh, what makes the, the Green New Deal so important is getting labor buy-in is crucial because to me, the, the, the green parts, the easy part to understand of the Green New Deal, the harder part is to understand the New Deal part. It needs to be something that ensures economic security for all Americans at the same time that it's that it's providing environmental sustainability. It has to be both of those things. And so that's where workers, you know, are really, really important in that effort. Yeah, totally agree. So obviously one of the big like labor fights that happened quite recently was uh was the Amazon labor fight down south. And um one of the issues I think I've I wouldn't say have with it, but one of I guess one of the the criticisms of the labor organizing down there was that um, instead of focusing more on you know the solidarity of workers' rights, there was a lot of identity identity politics uh, implemented into it, saying you know, uh, well we have to do this so uh, black workers can have um, fair wages, right? And I think that's kind of doing a disservice because there's a lot of white workers who work there as well, and I think. Uh, and this is, and uh, me and Anders had a conversation about this uh, maybe last week about how identity politics actually serves the opposite purpose of what you're trying to achieve as a goal. So if you're using identity politics as a weapon, uh, it can ultimately backfire from your goal. And I think that could have possibly had something to do with uh, the situation in uh, oh, what city was it again? Bessemer. Bessemer. Yeah, Bessemer, Bessemer Alabama. Yeah. And um, so I, I was hearing reports that they were saying, you know, you have to do this and that. And the other workers were like, well, I won't get wages, too. And I, I don't see how this works out. Can you talk about how uh, how what is it is what is the most effective way to actually try to organize a, a labor union and, and why potentially from your perspective, why the Bessemer, Alabama uh, union uh, fight failed? Sure. Yeah. So, so the first thing, okay, the, the starting point for the Amazon uh, fight in Bessemer is um, that our labor law is broken. Now, I'll get to the racial question in just a second because that's important. But you know, any like postmortem of that that um, you know organizing drive has to start with the fact that corporations have vastly too much power in um, these sorts of organizing drives, right? So remember, I was talking about Carter and this badly needed labor reform in the 1970s, this is a, what Amazon was allowed to do as a product of that, right? So by the 1970s, there was, you had corporations that had, were spending millions of dollars on something called the union avoidance industry. And, and, and the idea is basically you look for any loophole in the National Labor Relations Act you can to prevent workers from being able to form a bargaining unit and being able to get represent the workers at a workplace and being able to collectively bargain. So, um, you know, one of the things that companies started doing is they would just, you know, first of all, they would hold workers in captive audience meetings where they would tell them how bad it was going to be to unionize and, 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 you know, um, you know, how much the dues were going to be. And they would just do this, uh, you know, for multiple times during a, a, an organizing drive. They would fire workers who were actually doing the organizing. Now it's illegal to do that, but the only recourse for those workers is to go through a very long process to try and get their jobs back, and they're not allowed to get punitive damages, where like like you would get if you got fired for 
um, you know, uh, being African American or you know being a, a Baptist, right? Like your your religion is protected, but not if you're a you know union organizer. Um, so they would they would fire those workers if 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 they if the union still won uh, you know a, a con, um, an election then the company would just refuse to bargain. And there's really nothing that's in the law that forces those companies to bargain. So one of the labor reforms that was proposed in the 70s, and, and it felt two votes short of breaking a filibuster, which, first of all, we should be talking about getting rid of the filibuster, right? But, but Carter would not put any energy into actually breaking that filibuster when he really could have put a lot of leverage into it. And that would have changed things because some of the things that Amazon did would have been illegal. So like, um, and, and actually a lot of these things are, are now proposed in the PRO Act, which has passed the House and has not yet passed the Senate. Again, ironically, because of the filibuster. Um, but one of the things that both this labor law reform and the PRO Act would do is give the union equal time. So if a company wanted to hold a captive audience meeting, the union would get equal time to make their case to the workers. That's how democracy should work, right? You should be able to make an informed choice based on you know, hearing both sides of the, of the argument. And that's just not happening. Um, Amazon, it, it's, it's quite likely that there'll be another election because Amazon actually put a, a mailbox in in the worksite, they, 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 they got the postal service to do this, put a mailbox at the worksite so that workers who wanted to vote, remember this is during COVID, so it's by mail, they could put their ballots in there. Now, do you think any pro-union workers are going to put their ballots in there? No, because they're being surveilled by the company. So it's so all it did was make it easier for any worker who opposed the union to, to vote there. I, I could give you more examples, but but you get the idea here, right? That's That's the first thing is any analysis of the Amazon fight has to take that into account. Um, now, in terms of the, the the question about race, you know, I I I fully um, believe that we should be thinking about helping workers to build class identity. At the same time, you know, I would caution against any kind of tactic that isn't able to talk about race and how it fits in. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So. You know, A. Philip Randolph, I don't know if y'all have heard of A. Philip Randolph. He's one of my heroes. Okay. Everybody who's listening to this, learn about A. Philip Randolph. Okay. Uh, A. Philip Randolph was a black labor leader. He uh, was the president of this union called the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Uh, he, you know, in the 1930s, and he basically helped build that union. It was an all black union. These were the, these were the people, these were their most, they're, they're men who you know, effectively did like service work on uh, rail cars, right? And so Randolph helped organize them. Uh, they won uh, a collective bargaining contract after the National Labor Relations Act in 1935. The NAACP talked about this as both um, a, an important contract for workers, but an important civil rights victory. Okay, this was in the late 30s. So Randolph becomes a leader in not just the, you know, for, for, for uh, black workers, but in the labor movement. And he's the organizer of the March on Washington. He and another, um, another uh, uh, activist named Bayard Rustin. By the way, quick aside, I don't know if, uh, uh, Anders, I don't know if you ever heard of a professor named uh, Jerry Poder. <coughs> Excuse yeah, me. Yeah, I know. I know Jerry, Jerry Poder. Yeah. Jerry's, Jerry's a good friend of mine. Jerry's written a biography of uh, Bayard Rustin that I highly recommend people checking out. But anyway, Randolph and Rustin organized the March in Washington. And one of the things that, that Randolph was doing by the end of his life is he was pushing, he and, and Rustin were pushing for something called the freedom budget. 
And the freedom budget was a proposal in the late 60s that would have guaranteed everybody, everybody the right to a job. It would have guaranteed good education. It would have guaranteed health care for everybody, right? And the idea was like, we can't have true freedom in this country unless people's you know, economic needs are being met. Comes, comes right out of the kind of New Deal vision for how to you know, provide social democracy for everybody. And the argument Randolph would always make, it was brilliant, okay? He would talk about economic rights for everyone, but he would also talk about it as a civil rights issue, right? And, and actually look this up sometime, look at his speech at the March on Washington in 1963. King of course gives the speech that we all remember, I have a dream, but Randolph's speech has much more specific um, policy ideas, right? And so what Randolph says is no worker is going to be uh, secure in this country until African-American workers are because they're the ones who are the most um, discriminated against them, the ones who have the, the least amount of agency in the workplace. And so I think there's a way I, I totally get, you know, Andre, I totally get your point about uh, solely relying on appeals to say Black Lives Matter and say the Bessemer strike. But I think it's really important to talk about economic justice as both a civil rights issue and an issue that, that impacts everyone. And that's how you build a working class that is able to transcend our historical divisions because those historical divisions, they do matter. It's not enough to just say, well, everybody's got to think about themselves like workers. You know, the, 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 the culture and the identity that people have, it is an important part of the equation. And we have to meet people where they are and figure out how to how to transcend those things if we're going to build the kind of labor movement that that can that can really unite you know workers of all different backgrounds completely agree and that's a very nuanced question or answer to my question so i uh, thank you good sure yeah i so that the talk about amazon i really like how you discuss the the bessemer union failure as a like a policy failure rather than a failure of organizing, which of course there, there are things that could have changed, but you know, as, as you brought up, there were a lot of reasons that, you know, were pre-existing just in our culture that caused this to fail more so than any of the labor organizers themselves caused this to fail. And I think that's a really important perspective, but kind of shifting. So, you know, I'm, I'm in Appleton right now, you're in Green Bay and Andre's in Sheboygan these are all cities like Wisconsin as a whole, but these specific cities as well are seen as like places that like have a strong history of unions and the labor movement. Um, and, you know, Wisconsin is a pretty industrial and agricultural state. That's part of it. Um, but what makes, you know, like Green Bay and that kind of area or a lot of these places in Wisconsin, what makes their like what makes them especially significant in like the history of labor movements and why are labor movements important to Wisconsin now? Sure. Well, I mean, I think you, I think you hit on a lot of the reasons for that in terms of the, the um, state's economic background, right? It's a, it's a heavily, it's traditionally been a heavily blue collar state. Um, you know, going back to the 19th century, um, you know, it was also a state with a number of radical ideas. Okay, so uh, in, um, you know, first of all, uh, I, I, a book that folks might want to read, there's a great book by a journalist named Dan Kaufman, 
called The Fall of Wisconsin. Uh, Dan is a, uh, a writer. He writes a lot for the, he's a freelance writer mostly, but he writes a lot of pieces for the New Yorker and, and writes a lot about Wisconsin because he, he grew up here. And, and in the book, one of the things he talks about is in the very early days of the state, you have a lot of immigrants from Scandinavia with the, who have these sort of like, you know, very socialist kind of ideas about property ownership and, and they become very important in, in the state's kind of early history. Um, you also have a, a strong radical German tradition. So there's a series of revolutions in Europe in 1848. And, um, you know, the, in, in Germany, of course, Germany is not Germany at the time. It's, you know, a collection of, of states. But, um, you know, the, the uh, revolution is basically put down. And so you have a number of Germans, people like uh, Karl Schurz and others who come to, the, come to the United States. Many of them come to Wisconsin. Uh, Schurz becomes actually a, a prominent abolitionist and leader in the Republican Party. And then, of course, the Republican Party is formed in Wisconsin, right? Which, not to overstate things, I mean, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, give the impression that you know some of these folks who were advocating against slavery weren't, they didn't also have problematic racial ideas. But, but in terms of the, um, uh, you know, the institution of slavery, you know, you have really Wisconsin sort of at the at the um, uh, at the tip of the spear of, of organizing against the expansion of slavery into other parts of the United States. Then in the late 19th century, you've got these labor battles largely centered in Milwaukee, um, you know, with these radical ideas and, you know, push for an eight hour workday is, is sort of at the heart of, you know, this, this massive uh, uh, general strike in the city in 1886. Uh, you know, that there's a, there's you, folks listening to this probably know about like Haymarket Square. That was part of the same effort as what happened in Milwaukee in 1886. And so sort of coming out of that tradition, you've got a series of socialist mayors in Milwaukee starting in uh, 1910. Uh, from about 1910 into until 1960, um, there are more socialist mayors in Milwaukee than years where there was not a socialist mayor. Okay, so you so you have this kind of strong, radical um, socialist and social democratic background in the state. And, you know, as well as this, you know, kind of blue collar, um, uh, you know, this, 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 you know, blue collar history, um, proportionately there are more workers in unions in Wisconsin, um, you know, especially after the 1930s than there are in other parts of the country. Um, this is also the first state I could just, I could go on and on, but but if you want to dig into any of these, we can do it. But, um, you know, Wisconsin is also the first state to guarantee uh, collective bargaining rights for public employees. That happens in 1959. It doesn't come out of the blue. It comes because there's a there's a, a strong cohort of organized workers who are pushing to change the law to allow that to happen. So, you know, you've got this this kind of traditional strength. And and that's, I think, all the more reason that reactionaries, I wouldn't even use the word conservative, I would use the word reactionaries, people who want to take us back to a time that is even more unequal, uh, like Scott Walker and Republicans um, sought to try to dismantle the labor movement here in Wisconsin, it, you know, with Act 10, of course, but then, um, you know, they went after private sector workers just a couple years after that, in spite of Walker's campaign promise not to do that. Um, and so, you know, that, that's why they did that, because, because of the sort of long history and strength of the labor movement in our state. Did that yeah. answer your question? Was there more I was supposed to answer? I can't remember. <laughs> no, that was great. Yeah. That was a great answer. And I think that, you know, 
part part of it is just like there's been there have been a lot of radical movements that have started in Wisconsin. I know, like being that I get involved in a lot of environmental events, being that I'm involved with the Sunrise Movement, people always talk about Senator Gaylord Nelson as well, who sure. started what's considered kind of the modern environmentalist movement. Sure. Um, with air quotes around it, because of course, you know, there were people here for centuries before us who were true environmentalists, but yeah. you know, in some senses you, that originated here as well, which is really, really cool. Yeah. You know, and, and do you know Kaufman's book? Do you know that book, the fall of Wisconsin? No, I don't. You should get a copy of that actually, because he, he talks about a lot of the environmental stuff too. And, and with some of the same nuance about, you know, uh, indigenous traditions, first nations, people in the state. So yeah. And it's, it's, it's highly readable. He's actually one of my favorite writers. He's a great writer. So yeah, highly, highly recommend picking up a copy of that book. If you want to learn more about that history in our state. Yeah, I'm already Googling it. So definitely going to have to check it out. But um, on the topic of environmental um, environmental justice, I think there's always this, this false choice presented to workers that, okay, you can't have your green jobs because it will take away your current jobs and you'll be put out of work. And I think that's kind of mis well, I think it's just misleading, but it it's also on the politicians to say, okay, we're going to transition good paying union jobs into green and renewable technology. I guess what can you say to workers or what should one say to workers who are organizing in labor unions who might be worried about their current jobs because maybe they work at an oil rig, maybe they work in a coal plant and maybe they work in 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 a an industry in which their job is inherently bad for the environment. Um, like, how do you how do you talk to somebody in that industry and, and kind of reassure them that you're, you're fighting to make sure that they have good paying jobs in the future? Yeah, I mean, that's that is such a central part of the conversation. And I'll tell you one thing you don't do. You don't say we're going to put a lot of coal miners out of business. <laughs> do any of you remember who said that? Yeah, yeah, Hillary. Hillary? Clinton. Yeah, I thought it was Hillary. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. she's didn't she say like she's gonna teach them how to program or something? I don't know. It was no, that, no, that was that was Biden talking about teaching them to learn how to code. Well, it was Hillary. It was Hillary who said that, and then she didn't campaign in any states with high union rates, anyways. So it ended yeah. up not mattering now, at all. <laughs> now, now I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a little bit fair. I'm, I'm I want to be fair to Clinton on one point. Okay, and people forget this. You know, in the in the run up to the election, uh, 2016, you know, the polls were all wrong, right? Like every poll was wrong. She thought that she had states like Wisconsin in the bag, rightly or wrongly. I'm not saying that that's right, but if you remember, one of the things Trump was doing was, you know, basically saying like everything's rigged. You know, if the election's close, it's going to be rigged. It's going to be fake. And so I think what she decided to do was to go to states that seemed to be more in play and campaign there. I'm not saying it wasn't a mistake. In retrospect, it clearly was. I'm just saying, like, you know, in fairness to Hillary Clinton, she was up against a historically uh, mendacious and just vicious candidate, right? So I'll, I'll so I'll, I'll I'll say that, okay. Um, but yeah, her her um, her campaign was not particularly targeted toward working people, and this is what I was talking about. Remember, I mentioned how the party became sort of captured by professional class interests in the '70s. That's kind of what I'm saying here, right? Like, you know, the I'm an educator, right? But but you know, so of course I support the importance of of education, 
But for too long, you've heard especially Democratic politicians say, well, don't worry about your job, just get an education, right? I mean, that, that's what um, I'm, you know, I'm writing a book about this, but, but that's what in the debate about NAFTA, for example, that's what Clinton says. That's what uh, Robert Reich, who's now become this great critic of, of wealth inequality, Reich was Clinton's secretary of labor. He's going around telling workers, hey, NAFTA is going to be great for you because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we're going to retrain you and you're going to, there's going to be a booming economy and you're going to find great jobs. Well, that doesn't sound um, all that reassuring to somebody who has invested decades of sweat equity into their job. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about somebody who works on an oil rig or somebody who works in a coal mine, right? I mean, for people who don't do that kind of work, it can seem like, well, that's that's dangerous work, it's dirty work, it's tedious. But you know, we have a cult, we have a very important cultural um uh, expectation of people contributing to our our country, whether that's the economy or its politics, through hard work, you know, and we have to recognize that, and we have to recognize that people also feel like, um, you know, they've 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 got, uh, you know, that they've built an entitlement to the job that they have because of everything that they've contributed. So it's n- even if you can guarantee somebody a job, which I think we should do, and I think that's like kind of the, the precursor to having any of these sorts of conversations. And that's not happening, by the way, you're like, we're not talking about things that way, but we should, it's still going to be scary to people. It's still going to be scary. And so I think to mitigate that, what you have to do is like really give every person who works for a living confidence that they're going to have a job. That job is going to meet their economic needs and it's going to allow them to do something in which they're going to contribute to the world, because that's that's a big part of thinking about this, right? These are not just like a job is a job is a job. These things matter. And so to be able to talk about them, you know, like working people just tune out if you say, we're going to teach you to code. I mean, not everybody wants to be a computer coder and they shouldn't have to. So we also have to be able to envision what are the kinds of jobs that we're actually going to ask people to do? We have to be able to show them, okay, these are the jobs that are going to be created. You're going to be guaranteed doing this sort of job. It's going to be different than, than coal mining, but it's going to involve a lot of the same skill set and you're going to contribute and you're going to be a big part of, you know, changing our economy into one that's more sustainable and making sure everybody's future is good. I think that's how you have to pitch it. Unfortunately, so, so, so few people are saying it that way, you know, and, and um, that's, that's why it's difficult. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I think they're, I think the only person who's really kind of, uh, really talked about that, at least on the national stage, was Bernie Sanders, and we see yep. how they they treated him. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that was my last question. Andres, I, do you have any more? I have one more. I have one more question. Sure. Um, you referenced the pro act earlier, and I just want to kind of know from your standpoint where where you really focus your study on labor and, you know, what how organized labor can, you know, become more practical and how we can get more people involved and protect more workers and their rights. Um, and kind of what what I want to hear is being that you're an expert on labor, what do you think of the PRO Act? Like what parts of it? are really important and good because even, you know, that that bill has a lot of important good stuff in it, but where do you think um, that it needs to go farther uh, as well? What, what do you think about the PRO Act? Yeah, yeah, great question. So, you know, the, the PRO Act, 
is quite honestly, you know, look, let me let me start by saying this. Um, Bernie Sanders lost, obviously, in, in 2016 and 2020. I, I'll unfortunately, go on record. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll go on record as saying this. It's not a, I mean, you could find this easily by Googling it. I, I supported I supported Bernie in both elections. I can, yeah, I can see that, um, you know, uh, proudly. Um, I campaigned for Bernie. I was I was part of uh, organizing labor events for Bernie in 2020 in particular. Um, so yeah, he lost, but um, we would not be talking about the PRO Act right now were it not for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And you know, the, the Sanders campaign, you know, I, I think um, we have to be a little careful about, you know, sort of like hero worship with Bernie, right? And I know you're not doing that. I'm just saying like in general, because what made that that phenomenon so important, it's very similar to the 1930s, actually, um, because you had this dialectic between, um, you know, a lot of people who were frustrated with the status quo, wanted to see something different, but you also had this politician who got that. Um, I think Bernie made some mistakes, honestly, especially in 2020, but um, the fact that we're talking about the PRO Act uh, is because of that movement. It's because we've pushed working class issues to the forefront of the agenda. And the PRO Act is the best piece of worker legislation in terms of union organizing that's that's gotten to this point, that's that's been taken seriously, honestly, maybe since the New Deal. It, it, it might actually be. Uh, you know, like in the 60s, there was an effort to repeal uh, right to work laws uh, that got filibustered. Even... Um, you know, even even uh, the labor reform in the 1970s, the product goes further than that in some ways. Um, so, you know, what it does is there's a number of different things that would um, eliminate um, uh, a lot of these unfair labor practices, captive audience meetings. Uh, it would compel people with federal contracts to collect uh, your employers with uh, collect, uh, federal contracts to collectively bargain. And it would end right to work, actually. That's something that the, the labor reform in the late 70s didn't do uh, because Carter wasn't even willing to entertain that idea. He came from a right to work state. Did, do, we, do you know what right to work is? Do you want me to explain that for people? Yeah, but you can explain it really quick for people listening. Yeah, so, Why not? so, so right to work are uh, state laws um, that allow legislatures to uh, outlaw union security agreements, right? So you can't require somebody to contribute for um, re the, the representation of a union, but they still get all the benefits of the contract. It would be like uh, making taxes optional, right? Some of us would still pay it because we think it's important, but a lot of people wouldn't because they could just get away with not paying taxes, but they'd still get all the benefits of roads and public education, et cetera. So the PRO Act would outlaw that. Um, and, you know, so there, you know, it's not a, it's not a magic bullet there, you know, I think workers are still gonna have to organize and there are really even more far far reaching things that we should be thinking about. I mean, you've heard me say this before. We, you know, this isn't a union thing necessarily, but we should be guaranteeing everybody the right to a job. That's that, you know, I think is something that in terms of labor politics, we should be talking about. And I also think one thing that's not in the PRO Act that we might think about long term is sectoral bargaining. So um, especially for, I mean, the, the Wagner Act is very difficult, can be very difficult in some ways particularly for workers in certain sectors like home care workers, which is the largest growing occupation in this country, um, fast food workers and other low, you know, low paying workers who maybe all work for, you know, different um, franchises of a big corporation, uh, organizing things and negotiating by sector, right? Like if you think about negotiating a big agreement for all the fast food workers in this country covered by like, 
you know, the, the 10 biggest uh, fast food employers, that, that would actually be a much more efficient way of bargaining and would give those workers a lot more power because you'd have more of them kind of bargaining together. So that's something that I think we should be thinking about long-term, but that's not, you know, that's not on the agenda yet. Um, was there another part of the question? Sorry. No, I mean, that that's great. Kind of just a breakdown on, on what your take was. And I think that, you know, like a lot of the discussions that are going on that, you know, there's there's incremental benefits and there are some things like outlawing right to work, which is huge. But then also um, there are some ways where there are still problems that are that are going to be left over. Um, before, before we finish, I just wanted to give you one more chance. Are there any, is there anything that you're doing or your Twitter or anything that you wanted to plug before we end the episode? Uh, sure. Yeah. So, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at prof underbar Shelton. Um, and I'm given a, I guess this won't be out by then, but I'm giving that talk in Sheboygan on, that's actually on Monday. Um, so I'll be, I'll be posting this tomorrow morning. So that'll oh, you be, will. be okay. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Monday, if you're in the Sheboygan area, uh, if there's anybody here who's in the Sheboygan area, uh, given a talk at the, uh, Sheboygan historical society at six, um, 6 PM on, uh, the history of workers at Kohler and how that connects to, you know, bigger labor issues in, in the United States. Um, yeah. And, uh, I'll have a book coming out once I finally get it finished it's almost done but i'll have a book coming out that's tentatively called um the education myth uh how human capital trumped social democracy that'll be coming out probably next year great well uh thank you john for coming on and thank you everybody for listening have a nice weekend thanks Peace.